Our passage today is from Judges 6 and 7, and I'm reading from the NIV. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Aphra that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where the son of Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the land, into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, now if I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside and prepared a young goat and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, 
Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Aphra of the Abia's rites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of its height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So, because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan, encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abia's rites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, uh, Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, and you said, as you said. But that is what, and that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The spring of Midian was north of them, and the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Or Gilead. So 20,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, 
There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank with cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that, that lapped, I will save you and, the, and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept three hundred, and took over the provisions and trumpets to the, of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purus, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could do, uh, their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon's son of Joseph, the Israelites. God has given the Midianites the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camps into your hands. Dividing three hundred men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all round the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hand the trumpets that they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshitta, towards Zerahah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher and Manasseh were all, all were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, um, Oeb and Zeb, and they killed Oeb and the, at the rock of 
Oreb, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Good morning. It's great to be with you today. Thank you to Harriet for taking us through the marathon epic that is the story of Gideon. And you'll see that Gideon is the person that we're thinking about today in our summer series of uh, people from the Bible who God chooses to use. So um, thanks, Harriet, for taking us through that. And uh, uh, there's a few tricky words in there, but uh, Harriet was ably assisted by the cat you might have heard in the background. You know, in this series, we're thinking about um, ordinary people and God chooses to do extraordinary things through them. And, you know, we're all ordinary people and we're unworthy people in, in many ways. But God chooses to use us in the furtherance of his kingdom. We are those jars of clay. But if we belong to the Lord, then within us, there is treasure. And that's what we discover here. And that treasure comes to the fore with God's unsurpassed power. So as we come to God's word now, let's um, uh, come to him in prayer and just commit this time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And in the words that we have just sung, we pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you. Make us receptive to you, we pray. Guide us in our thinking. Speak to our hearts. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Now, if you're anything like me, then you'll readily identify with Gideon's weaknesses and flaws. But as Andy reminded us last week, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians that addresses that very issue. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And we can lay claim to that. Gideon was a farmer struggling to feed his family in the face of opposition. But with God's intervention, he became one of the Israelite judges, one of the tribal leaders, with a particular eye on the political and the military uh, matters that were happening. God used him in a mighty way. We're going to look very briefly at the context of the book of Judges to get an understanding of the story and the journey of Gideon. Dan explained to us a couple of weeks ago when we were thinking about the story of Deborah, another of the judges. And in the book of Judges, we see that there is this repeating pattern. We see that uh, throughout the whole of the book of Judges, the people of God, the Israelites, they turn away from God and things get worse and worse as they spiral further away from God. They take on the local customs of the people around them and particularly they start to worship false gods and idols. And this is in disobedience to, to God. So we see then that this repeating pattern um, features. God's people end up in a state of sin and in that state of sin they face oppression. And that oppression is, is permitted by God and gets to a point where they can stand it no more. And at that point, they repent, they turn back to God and they cry out for help. 
And God in his mercy delivers them, normally through um, raising somebody up. But they, they get that deliverance. And once the deliverance has occurred, then they experience and enjoy that time of peace. But in that time of peace, then they stray back into sin. And this is the pattern that repeats throughout the whole of the book of Judges. And even in the first few verses of the story of Gideon, we can see there um, that, that pattern emerging. So it's, it's into that that, um, that we see Gideon. And it's worth bearing in mind that Gideon is the fifth of the judges in the, in the book. And so this pattern goes round and round again. Now, it's also worth bearing in mind that we know God to be multifaceted. He's, he has many characteristics, but he, these characteristics, all these attitudes, they don't emerge one at a time. God is always all of who he is all the time. And that's a really important thing for us to bear in mind. God is full of mercy and justice. God is fully loving towards his people, but angry towards those that are not his own people, towards his enemies. God is simultaneously sovereign and meek. In the story of Gideon, we see uh, God's uncompromising actions against the enemy, against the Midianites, those who oppose his rule and his holiness. But we also, at the same time, see the way in which Gideon looks after, sorry, God looks after Gideon. God treats Gideon with love and patience, with forbearance, and in a very personal way. Now, Gideon and the people around him, the Israelites, were in that state of sin. They were worshipping Baal and Asherah, these heathen gods, these false gods. And in doing that, they are disobeying gods. They are moving away from the God that has rescued them, the God that has called them his own people. And the opposition that they face is from the Midianites. The Midianites were a tribe that were descended from Abraham, and they were nomadic. Um, and they would frequently join forces with other tribes in the, in the area against the Israelites. And they are the enemy. They are God's enemy. In the book of uh, Numbers, we see God's instruction to Moses when he says, The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. And a little bit later in the book of Numbers, in chapter 31, the same message is repeated. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. The issue was that the Israelites, when they took possession of the land that God had promised them, had failed to drive out the opposition. They had failed to deal conclusively with their enemies. And so the Midianites at this stage have regrouped, they have repopulated, and they have risen up against the Israelites. They've risen up against God's people. And it's into this mess that we see Gideon. God chooses to use Gideon to bring deliverance. And to do that, God has to take Gideon on a journey. 
And there are aspects or facets to this journey that I'd like us to think about this morning. Gideon's journey goes from reluctance to repentance. It goes from fear to faith. Gideon goes from weakness to being a warrior. So we'll just look at those one at a time and see what there is for us to learn from the story of Gideon that we can apply to our lives. So we see the Midianites are, are invading the land and they're stealing the crops and they are putting the uh, Israelites into a really difficult and sorry state. They ravage the land, we're told, and uh, they're described as being like a swarm of locusts and their number is so great that they can't even count their camels. So it, it's a really messy situation. And in their opposition, the Israelites cry out to God. So God sends them a prophet and this prophet tells the people the brutal truth from God. Through the prophets, God is saying to them, I've rescued you, I've delivered you, I've called you as my people and I've told you not to bow down and worship other gods, but you have not listened. A little bit later then, an angel comes and greets Gideon. And Gideon responds with these words, and in many ways these words are the words of the whole of the Israelite people. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's a familiar kind of a cry, isn't it? When we face difficulties. Where's God? If God really cares, why doesn't he do this or that or the other? Gideon was unwilling or unable to recognise his own sin and the sin of his people. We can fall into the same trap. We too can be reluctant to face the, the, our own sin as the cause for our circumstances. But notice that God does not react to that, but rather shows grace and mercy. So as the story moves on, um, we see Gideon prepares a, a sacrifice for the Lord. And uh, he, he, he brings that, and in making that sacrifice, he is, in effect, making atonement for his own sin. He starts that process. Now, the angel brings fire from the rock and that consumes the offering. And in doing that, the angel is, on God's behalf, accepting that sacrifice, but also confirming that this message has come directly from God. Gideon's actually afraid that he's going to die because he's aware of the instruction that God had given to Moses. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 33, where God says, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Gideon recognises this is God, the God I need to turn back to, the God I need to seek repentance from. And that's what he does. He turns away from idol worship and turns back to God. 
Gideon's offering to God and the building of a, an altar to God are a personal and private recognition of his repentance. But he's not gone far enough because those uh, altars to the false gods, to Baal and to Asherah, they remain and they need to be removed. And God instructs Gideon to do just that. Now, for us today, we might consider these idols and think, well, they don't really affect what we do. We don't have idols of wood or stone or even gold. But we would be deceiving ourselves if that was our thinking. The reality is we do have those idols. We have idols that replace them. And typically for us, we're the last to recognise that we have idols or even what they are. We're the last to recognise that we bow down and worship other things. Matthew Henry says this, Repentance is real when the sinfulness of sin as disobedience to God is chiefly lamented. In other words, it's only when we recognise that the very core of our sin is disobedience to God. That's the point at which we can start the process of repentance. Just like Gideon, we need to acknowledge our sinfulness and we need to come back to the Lord and turn away. It may well be that turning away from our idols isn't enough. They need to be destroyed or removed as Gideon instructed, uh, sorry, as God uh, instructed Gideon to do. And rather like the Israelites, if we don't do a thorough job, if we don't do a complete job, then we run the risk of lapsing back into worshipping the idols that we face. We can have the confidence to know, though, that if we belong to the Lord and if we come to uh, the Lord, we know that our sins can be forgiven because of the ultimate sacrifice made by the Lord Jesus. We read in 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Having that right relationship with God must be paramount. It's it's paramount for us and it must be first and foremost in all that we do and all that we are. And for Gideon too, putting that relationship right with God facilitated the way for God to act and for him to use Gideon. So we see then that Gideon moves from uh, from repentance and once he repents, then his faith can start to grow. So let's just see the journey that Gideon goes through from faith to fear. Sorry, other way around, from fear to faith. Important to get that the right way around. When Gideon is uh, first presented with this mission to save the Israelites, his, his response is this. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Gideon focuses on his own weakness. He starts making excuses. 
And isn't that just typical of us too? When we have a mission, we're really good at coming up with excuses. Gideon was looking only at his limitations and we can do the same. The problem is we fail to see what God can do. By focusing on our own limitations, the implication is that we're saying God doesn't know us or that somehow God has made a mistake. And we know that that's not the case. In verse 26 of chapter 6, uh, God asks Gideon to build a proper kind of an altar. In other words, to remove those altars to the false gods and to build a proper kind of an altar to him up on the top of a hill to make it very obvious, very public. God is calling Gideon to make a stand. But we know in uh, verse 27, uh, we read this. Because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So although Gideon does as he's told, he tries to do it sneakily. He does it in the dead of night. Needless to say, it doesn't really work because come the morning, people notice that the altars of, to, to Baal and Asherah have gone and a new altar to the Lord is there. And they're not happy about it. It's a very unpopular move on, on Gideon's part. So much so that he runs the risk of being killed. It's that serious. However, that's a really vital step that Gideon should have taken because it's firstly a sign of his repentance, but also of his commitment to the Lord. And as a result of that, Gideon gets himself a nickname. It's not necessarily a positive nickname, but nevertheless, uh, it, he has this nickname. But with it goes a reputation, a reputation as somebody who stands for the Lord. And that's a big deal, him standing for the Lord. He's going against his family and he's going against the townspeople. And it stands out pretty much on his own. And that's a big deal. And we shouldn't underestimate that. It really should lead us, though, to ask ourselves that same question. What do we stand for? What are we known for? It's a challenging and searching question. God brings some reassurances for Gideon. And as he begins the process of understanding and accepting uh, and, and believing what God can do, Gideon asks for signs and God grants those signs. Knowing what Gideon is like, just when he's on the point of that battle, Again, Gideon is filled with fear, but God reassures him in a way that Gideon didn't ask for. Uh, God says to Gideon in, in chapter 7 and verse 10, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying. And through the dream of one person and the interpretation of another, Gideon overhears that God is going to grant them victory in this battle. What's Gideon's reaction to that? He bows down and he worships. What a difference from the Gideon that we meet at the beginning of the story. Through his rise in faith, he turns to God in worship. And we see that cycle for Gideon. As he takes those tentative steps of faith, God reassures him and builds his confidence. 
And as a result of that, Gideon is much more willing and prepared to come back to the Lord in worship and in praise. And that in turn sparks him to take further steps of faith. And so this virtuous circle is set up and continue. These first steps of faith for Gideon were punctuated by him asking for these signs. Was Gideon right to ask for signs, I wonder? I've certainly been in a position where I've wanted God to give me some equivocal equivocal direction or, or guidance. Perhaps I want to know a decision to make or a particular direction to go. What I'm really hoping for is a really big pointing finger to come from the sky and just make it absolutely clear to me. Or a flashing neon sign would be perfect. If only you could do that, Lord, that would be great. And these fleeces of Gideons are synonymous with us with seeking guidance. They're well known. The reality is, though, that it's fear that makes us look for confirmation. And frequently that confirmation just isn't required because the way to go is made clear for us. Gideon himself knows that he's on thin ice when he asks for that third uh, sign because he prefaces it by saying to God, please don't be angry with me, but please could you just show me another sign? There's potentially a case that Gideon is limiting his understanding to what he can believe rather than what God is capable of. And again, that's a real danger for us too. Wanting guidance and to be obedient is good. Lacking faith is not good. And asking for signs is dangerously close to testing God. And that's highly questionable. Gideon's requests for these signs came from a lack of faith. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, the famous well-known chapter on faith, uh, we read this. Now faith is confidence in what we have hoped for and assurance about what we do not see. The whole nature of faith is that it requires us to actively step out in faith, step out, be proactive, do something despite our questions and despite our fears. Jesus spoke, uh, frequently challenged his disciples about their lack of faith. Here's an example from, from when uh, Jesus calms the storm and he says to his disciples, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? In the story of Gideon, we don't see his lack of faith being challenged. But what we see is God drawing alongside him and taking him step by step along the way, shaping him through a series of exercises that build his faith. In exactly the same way, God knows us. God knows our weaknesses and our flaws. He knows that we are full of sin. He's intimately acquainted with our personal flaws and weaknesses, but God will meet us where we are. In an ideal situation, Gideon wouldn't have asked for these signs. He would have had the faith. But God is patient with him. He understands his weaknesses, his failings, and he gives him the signs that he asks for. He even gives him a sign that he hadn't asked for. We have what Gideon didn't have. We have the full word of God in the Bible. 
And that must be the primary source of our guidance. That's where we should turn to, to seek guidance from God. Our experience, though, is frequently that we hear our own feelings, those feelings of fear and failure and inadequacy. We hear them shouting to us. And what we don't hear is that inner quiet whisper of faith calling us to trust and obey. So as um, Gideon moves on his journey to repentance and to faith, we can see that God takes him from his weak state to becoming a warrior. When that angel first greets Gideon, he uses three bold statements. He says this, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon replies, but the angel continues, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Again, Gideon replies, but the angel continues, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving no one alive. Now, in each, after each of those bold statements from the angel, Gideon focuses on his weaknesses, his limitations, his inadequacies. But he's not listening, just as God said to the Israelites generally before. Listen, the answers are in those statements. Gideon will become a mighty warrior because God is with him. Gideon will save Israel because, um, because God is sending him. And Gideon has access to resources that he doesn't even know he's got. Gideon will strike down the Midianites because God will continue to be with him. We can all be weak in our faith, but God doesn't depend on the strength of our faith for him to work. And in the New Testament, we have his promise that, that his um, strength is made perfect in our weakness. Gideon's journey through repentance and faith takes him to a place where he is prepared to trust and obey. It happens in two particular ways. Firstly, God tells Gideon to reduce the size of his army. God make, makes it absolutely clear what his reason for this is. And it, he, when he says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me, my own strength saved me. It's really crucial that this reduced Midianite army and Gideon in, sorry uh, Israelite army and Gideon in particular realizes that the, their defeat their success that they're assured of against the Midianites will only come because of their faith in God they need to trust and obey so Gideon follows God's instructions in two different ways to reduce the size of the army from 32,000 men to 300 men that's a reduction of more than 99%. From a military point of view, it makes no sense at all. And it's no wonder that Gideon is feeling afraid. 
Nevertheless, he overcomes that feeling of fear. He trusts and obeys. Shortly after that, we discover the, the weapons that these 300 men are given. So they have a trumpet, probably a ram's horn, a clay jar and a torch. It's a somewhat dubious military tactic, unorthodox, some might say. Again, it makes no sense at all. But Gideon is prepared to trust and obey. Just imagine being in the Midianites camp that night. It's the middle watch of the night. That makes it about 10 p.m. The guards have just changed. And so they're going to be a bit more alert. And now is a time, knowing that you've got a really big day tomorrow, now's the time to just get some sleep ahead of the battle that's to come. Just drifting off to sleep when all of a sudden there is a mighty, tremendous, loud proclamation for the Lord and for Gideon. That's enough to wake them up. But it's followed immediately by the smashing of jars on the ground. Trumpet blasting and light suddenly appears on three sides of the camp. It's absolute pandemonium. Chaos is everywhere. And the Lord causes the Midianite army to turn on themselves, to, to, to attack each other and to flee. If we're watching that in the cinema, if this was a film and we watched it, surely the whole audience would be cheering at this point. From this daft, ridiculous military strategy, victory comes. There is a bit more of the story, um, but the key thing is that the mission is accomplished. Gideon, this man of reluctance and weakness, of fear and excuses, puts himself into God's hands and comes before God in repentance and humility and is prepared to trust and obey to be used by God. Gideon's mission to defeat the army came from his own circumstances. He was a farmer struggling to feed his family because of this opposition. But God chose to use him right where he was. Chances are we're not being asked to lead an army, but in the same way, God can use us in our circumstances. If you're anything like me and you can see yourself in Gideon's weaknesses and in his flaws, then maybe you can also see yourself as somebody being willing to serve God, to trust and obey exactly where you are, exactly in your circumstances. In the same way as Rahab, who we looked at last week with Andy, Gideon was prepared to respond in his circumstance. God can take us in our weakness and in our, with our limitations, but if we can trust and obey, then God can use us and chooses to use us. We have God's promise in the words that Jesus said to us. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, 
you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. There's an opportunity for, for some discussion and to chew over some of the points uh, that we've been thinking about here this morning. So if you, uh, if you want to click on the, the Get Involved button that you'll find at the top of the screen there, that will allow you to be put into groups. And there's some discussion questions that you might want to consider. And uh, it'd be great to think about those and to just embed some of these ideas into our own understanding and apply them to our lives. But for now, I'm just going to close in prayer. It's been great to have you with us today and uh, we look forward to catching up very soon. Let, let's pray to close our time. Heavenly Father, thank you that you choose to include us in your work, in the furtherance of your kingdom. Thank you that you accept from us the glory that's due to your name. Thank you too, Heavenly Father, that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you for the gift of faith. We want to say sorry for the times that we lack faith, but we ask that you will cause our faith to grow, cause us to trust and obey. Help us to listen to you, to be responsive to what you have for us to do. We ask it in your name, for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom, because only you are worthy. Amen. Jesus, I'm